Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. First of all, thank you very much, those of you who bought tickets for the live virtual show Rock and Roll Politics last week via King's Place. Hundreds and hundreds did, even though it clashed with the first televised Premier League match. We finished just in time for everybody who wanted to, to watch the Man City Arsenal game. It was beautifully timed. But even if that rock and roll politics show was crap, I still think they had the better half, that first half of the evening, than those who then tuned into the football. I tuned in, quite excited to see what it was going to be like with no crowd, no atmosphere. And it was weird, first compellingly weird, and then dull. And I switched off, actually, and turned to YouTube to watch Simon Rattle conducting The Rites of Spring, which was far more dramatic and vivid and unpredictable and exciting than this game. I don't know what it tells us about live events, the nature of football, the nature of sport, that the absence of spectators who aren't direct participants in the sport kind of diminishes to such an extent that these 22 overpaid players are reduced to kind of rather dull figures passing a ball around no doubt with great skill I watched another one on Friday I'm a Spurs season ticket holder and watched uh sorry for those of you not remotely interested about football but it's 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 to do with everything it's to do with politics too this because what is it about public events I remember Ed Miliband asking me once did I find that when I did public events, it was he was good Miliband in having a curiosity about others. This was when he was leader of the opposition, a job I would have died to have done at some point. But he was asking, when I do sort of public speaking events, a live show or speaking at an after-dinner event or anything, whether sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and you're never quite sure what has happened, what chemistry has turn something into a great success what chemistry has turned it into something which hasn't worked quite as well as you would expect it and it is really interesting that mix of people being together in a room can have wholly unpredictable consequences depending on mood and collective mood and so on and so it is without the crowd there it is in the football something huge has gone even though the crowd yeah come on yeah bastards get on with the guy you know all that kind of stuff it lifts it into another form even though it's still those 22 players kicking a ball around it's same actually doing these live virtual shows that you aren't quite sure what the reaction is of audiences in their rooms watching on computers or wherever they're watching it's a wholly different experience anyway I thought it was really boring and watch Simon Rattle conduct the I think it's the London Symphony Orchestra or something like that at the Barbican from a couple of years ago great political theatre actually meanwhile our political theatre is extraordinary you have a government that won this triumphant election in December on the back largely of the performance of a single figure, Johnson, struggling. Tory MPs elected on the back of Johnson's bravado campaigning performance in that December election, 
evasive on many, many fronts. But there was this bravado, let's get it done, oven ready. MPs winning on the back of those cliched slogans that went largely unchallenged by incredibly weak opponents. Uh, These MPs are now beginning to wonder whether Johnson's number 10 is up to the job. We explored this on the live show, and I'm not going to go through it again, but it is interesting when competence becomes an issue with a Tory government. Tory governments in England, because of the political culture of England, because of its media and so on, Tory governments tend to win any ideological battle with Labour in a general election. But they are in trouble if they are perceived as being incompetent. And some Tory MPs now worry with these U-turns, this uncertainty over lockdown exit strategy, Britain's world-beating test and trace app, world-beating, is not actually going to appear at all, and no app seems to be ready until the autumn. All these things have contributed to a sense of number 10 not really knowing what its strategic sense of direction is, or if it does, and I don't think it fully does, In Johnson, they have someone incapable of articulating it confidently. One of the arts of leadership is that even when you are unsure precisely where you're going, you give the impression that you fully know. Thatcher was good at this. You know, she used to U-turn all the time, actually, on economic policies, fundamental as that. Indeed, when she made that speech, that famous speech, I think it was 1980 or 81, you may turn if you want to. The lady is not for turning. She was referring to monetarist economic policies at precisely the moment they were loosening their purist approach to monetarism. She was kind of doing a U-turn as she was proclaiming in a quote that would partly define her, the ladies not for turning. And it was artistry of a rather crude sort, but artistry because it gave the impression of a sense of direction when to some extent nearly all leaders for a lot of the time are busking it. They are unsure what's going to happen next. They're not wholly in control of economic developments. They are part of a global economy where what happens in the US and China and indeed the European Union will determine to some extent what happens in their little island economy in the United Kingdom. So Johnson hasn't got that art of, he he sometimes says, we're following a plan, we're following a plan, because focus groups and they so interesting the degree to which they follow polls and focus groups, have indicated part of the disillusionment is the sense that they haven't got a clear plan. So he's often say we're following a plan, but he conveys uncertainty. And even now when he is claiming all the good news stories, it was very interesting, he took the Downing Street press conference last week on a Tuesday when it was normally on a Wednesday when he makes his weekly public appearance to be questioned somewhat mildly, inevitably, by journalists allowed a maximum of two questions. He chose one on the day when they had discovered this 
not cure, but medicine that alleviated some of the impact of the virus on some people. And there he took it. He wanted to be associated with a good news press conference. And so it is this week that he will be announcing liftings of various constraints for people, social distancing, going out and all the rest of it. And yet this figure who likes to be seen as an optimist has not engendered great confidence. And that's not just with parts of the media, parts of the electorate who might view some of his activities warily, but with his own MPs. And as we embark from phase one or phase two or whichever, what's going to be so interesting is to watch the internal debates over economic policy. And we've seen indications of the way the internal debate is going already. This government, like all governments in fairness, leaks like a sieve. The Theresa May government, if you remember famously, during cabinet meetings leaked regularly. And sometimes Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet meetings leaked regularly. This is not unusual. Uh, Before I come on to the current leaks and what they mean and where they come from, because it is a guide as to what weight you should give each of them, I always think of the story when Harold Wilson was Prime Minister in the mid-70s, a deep economic crisis as there normally is in Britain. The party was split, it was a minority government, he was under huge pressure And there were leaks all over the place from competing factions within a divided cabinet. And Wilson called an emergency cabinet meeting. Tony Benn recited it one night as he spoke into his cassette. And that's how he recorded his diaries, Tony Benn. And he said something like this. And this is interesting because, say, this current cabinet is, or government, is leaking like a sieve. Benn said something like this. Wednesday, February the 28th, 1975, Harold called an emergency meeting. He was red with fury. He slammed his pipe down on the cabinet table and said he was getting fed up with all the leaks from the cabinet and if it carried on any longer, he would sack anyone who leaked information about what the government was doing to the media. Harold was so cross, he said, I'm going out for a walk in the garden, we'll have a five-minute break, and then we will resume. During the break, I walked out of number 10 to buy the first edition of the Evening Standard, and the front page headline was, Wilson warns Cabinet about leaks. Harold had leaked the fact that he was threatening to sack ministers if they leaked. And that dance continues to this very day. Because... Over the weekend, on Saturday and Sunday, in papers like The Times, The Sunday Times, there were very upbeat briefings about what the government planned to announce. I think both papers cited this new number 10 slogan, build, build, build. Incidentally, it doesn't mean anything will be built, like the world-beating test tracker. Maybe nothing will happen. But it does reflect an expansionist instinct, almost Keynesian instinct of number 10 to spend, invest, VAT cuts, etc. to propel the economy into action again. And incidentally, what a different response from the Cameron Osborne response in 2010. This is the fourth 
term of that government and parts of it are speaking an entirely different economic language as if they came from a different part of the planet so that's coming from number 10 and yet on monday in the financial times there was a very different kind of tone to its front page story which was along the lines of yes there's going to be an announcement in the summer to get the economy going as britain emerges from lockdown but in the autumn retrenchment will begin with tough decisions on tax and spending now clearly that briefing came from the treasury the treasury is very much a sort of sound money culture you should follow the tweets of its former permanent secretary lovely guy nick mcpherson sir nick mcpherson now and the tweets are good but he always hashtags the tweets sound money to the point where you wonder how he allowed a penny to be spent. He was very involved with the Labour governments, but of course civil servants do what the government wants on the whole, although I think Treasury civil servants have a lot of influence unless you're a very, very strong Chancellor, as Gordon Brown and Ed Balls together were. But they are sound money people. Rishi Sunak probably is a sound money person by instinct. And number 10 are the expansionists. And so it's quite interesting, as you know now, after the departure of Sajib Javid, there is this joint committee of special advisors from Number 10 and the Treasury. And evidently, they have these meetings, and Number 10 leaks one interpretation, build, 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 come on, build. And then the Treasury retorts with, well, hold on a second, you wait, once we've done that announcement, we're going to, you know, there'll be tax rises, there'll have to be sound money, sound money, sound money. And this is going to be a very interesting dance over the coming months. Now, if I were to guess, I would suspect for the time being, it will be the number 10 view that broadly prevails. This is still although there are these whisperings of discontent and sometimes they're not whisperings on the back benches. Andrew Mitchell, for example, the former cabinet minister who, in my view, was unfairly tarnished with all that stuff about Plebgate when he was admirably cycling away from Downing Street on one occasion. Mitchell gave an interview where he described the mood as sulfurous on the back benches. And I think he's right you know, the conversations I have, uh, most of them unattributable because Tory MPs know that if they speak out against this regime, you're kind of as good as finished. Look at poor old Theresa Villiers, ardent Brexiteer, sacked from the cabinet, rewarded with a position on the Intelligence Committee. That position removed when she spoke out in favour of maintaining high food standards and against the agriculture bill going through, which could lead the way to kind of chlorinated chicken and the rest coming from America. Uh, if you speak out, you're in trouble. But there are lots of murmurings behind the scenes. That doesn't mean yet that this current number 10 becomes so vulnerable that the mighty Treasury can prevail in internal disputes. Normally, and this is a sign of how strong this number 10 is, strong in terms of its position, not in terms, as I was saying earlier, in its strategic sense or knowing how to deliver from the utterance of slogans to policy implementation. It doesn't. It's chaotic. But strong politically. 
is the fact that there is this joint special advisors committee instigated by Dominic Cummings, because normally the Treasury owns the economic narrative, not number 10. Number 10 can own other narratives. Look at Brown, prudence with a purpose. You know, that was all his doing from within the Treasury and the policies were framed to accompany those statements. George Osborne, similarly, we've got a plan, we're going to implement the plan and Britain is open for business. It was a kind of Treasury narrative. He would discuss things with Cameron, Cameron would agree anyway, but it was a Treasury-owned narrative. It's not now, it's partly owned by Number 10. And because of that election victory, and only because of that, not because of subsequent conduct or actually conduct before that election victory, both before and after the prime ministerial conduct and the conduct within Number 10 has been chaotic, provocative and not conducive to delivering policy on the ground. But because of that huge win, it retains an authority that will decline over time, but not yet. And Rishi Sunak, although getting rave reviews as a chancellor and as a public performer and as someone who can deliver policy, is still at the moment a creature of number 10, literally. He was created by number 10 when they got rid of Javid and he agreed to this joint special advisors committee and so on. And this dynamic could well change. The Treasury could become much stronger. Sunak could become much more assertive. And that will happen if the current chaos, the chaos that we've seen with the pandemic, the um, confusion we have seen in some other policy areas, Johnson's own stuttering, sometimes shambolic public performances, where oddly for a journalist, which is in effect what he is, he struggles sometimes to string sentences together very coherently. If that continues for a longer period of time, the dynamic will change that number 10 will become much more defensive and the Treasury, assuming Sunak remains a commanding public figure, will become more assertive. But for now, I think that build, build, build message, as I say, who knows whether a single brick will be laid anywhere, but that message and intent will prevail over Treasury orthodoxy for a bit longer. We'll have to see, but obviously... In the meantime, you have to navigate through slightly contradictory briefings, tonally at the very least, and I think in practical terms as well. So in the meantime, Johnson will hope that the loosening of the constraints will lead to a re-evaluation of government policy. But it is nerve-wracking the loosening of the restraints, nerve-wracking for all of us, obviously, for the obvious reason is we don't quite know how safe this will be. But politically, the stakes are really high. Because if you contemplate for one moment the idea of this wretched virus returning at force above the one, above the one, we mustn't go above the one, you know, and this is kind of, it's full of figures now, isn't it? We're at threat level three. It mustn't go above infection rate one. I've become obsessed with these things. But it's risky for Johnson too, because he knows that although he's come under a lot of criticism internally and beyond for not moving to narrow the social distancing rules more quickly, 
he will come under perhaps fatal fire if Britain is seen almost uniquely again to mishandle this phase of the crisis and that for this virus to re-erupt in the UK more markedly than some other countries. So all the kind of lockdown measures, I don't think they will ever lock down again en masse like they did belatedly, too belatedly in March, but all of it will come into play once again. One of the other reasons why Tory MPs are worried at this very early stage of a parliament, there's no way this parliament's going to end before 2024, 2025, no governing party is just going to risk this huge majority, is that Keir Starmer is so obviously a more formidable leader for them to be facing than Jeremy Corbyn. And that has had its dynamic too with these Prime Minister's question sessions where it's very interesting with Johnson, even though, of course, he's risen to the very top and you can't do that by hiding. But Johnson has managed to avoid scrutiny on the whole in any form. When he has had scrutiny, rarely, he has tended in the past to get into trouble. Famously, uh, when he was as Foreign Secretary, questioned by the Foreign Affairs Committee and got the status wrong or the vocation wrong of the poor woman who's uh, out there in Iran, was in an Iranian jail then. He got it, got it all kind of wrong and you know had to apologise and all the rest of it. Um, but most of the time, he isn't really challenged. I remember there's a sort of symbol of this. You might remember seeing this when Jeremy Paxman, still then the great inquisitor on Newsnight and Johnson was mayor of London, they were film cycling together in a very sort of chummy kind of sequence, film sequence. And it was a sort of symbol that he could literally ride away from interviewers. So there'd be no famous interview occasions where he has been scrutinised at great length. Eddie Mayer did it once over one or two aspects of his past life. Um, but on the whole, it hasn't really happened. So Starmer is in the unique position of having Johnson in front of him for a few minutes each week where he can ask six questions. Now, to be honest, six questions isn't that many. Anyone of that level should be able to handle six questions, although Starmer is good at posing them. He might not have been so successful last Wednesday, but on the whole, he has been clever and concise and precise in his scrutiny of Johnson, and it has thrown them. The way Johnson has responded is to do his thing about Starmer being a lawyer who can take a brief and, you know, he calls the speaker, my lord, here he is, one brief one day, another brief another day. And that is quite effective, in my view. It reminds me of what Tony Blair did with William Hague. Now, Tony Blair was a much more formidable figure than Johnson as a parliamentary performer and in many other respects too. But Haig had got to Blair by cracking jokes at Blair's expense, and they were funny. And you had MPs across the Commons laughing with him. And that is a powerful position to be in. And Alistair Campbell said, we've got to deal with Haig and his jokes. And what they did was come up with this line, was everyone laughing, Blair would stand up and say, look, he might be good at the jokes, but he's no good at policy. 
And in the end, it's policy that determines the fate of oppositions, not jokes. And Haig would stand up, say something witty again, and everyone would be laughing. And then Blair would say, there he goes, another joke. He can do the jokes. And it was very effective. In the end, Haig, every time he did it, looked like a kind of stand-up comedian, but not an alternative prime minister. They killed off the weapon he had been deploying at PMQs very effectively. Now, I'm not saying Johnson will do the same with Starmer because I think the nature of Prime Minister's questions is one where forensic questioning is, by definition, almost highly effective. All you've got are the questions. But in trying to get Starmer in a sort of stereotypical box of an affluent North London lawyer who machine-like asks questions as if it was a court is about the only thing available to them, and clearly that's what they're going to do. That doesn't mean Starmer should stop, and it wasn't actually the case that Haig stopped making his jokes, but it was just that they dealt with it. But it shows on one level that a number 10 operation, unused to having given, to giving much thought to what the opposition are up to, are now having to do so. And that response to the Starmer style is about as effective as they can get, given that Johnson will not be able to think quickly on his feet or answer Starmer's questions, which he has virtually wholly been unable to do. So that too is a dynamic that is developing in interesting ways. So is Brexit. I was speaking to somebody quite high up in government to had kind of come to the conclusion that these Brexit talks could end up with this compromise first mooted ages ago in the Spectator magazine by James Forsyth, who's very close to the number 10 operation, which is bizarre on one level when you think of all the energy that's gone through the whole process of Brexit, which is that broadly the trading relationship remains the same but if the UK starts to negotiate trade deals with others that have in the EU's view an impact on them the EU then have the right to impose tariffs on the UK something along those lines now this is will lead to an era of great uncertainty about the future of trade but it won't be as seismic as no deal or a deal which accepts immediate impositions on tariffs, the collapse of supply chains and all the rest of it, which would have had another huge hit on the UK economy. So although it will be crazy in some respects, because there will be permanent speculation about whether tariffs might come in at some point, if there's a US trade deal, what the implications would be for the relationship with the EU, and on and on it will go. But it's the best possible outcome, given the evangelical nature of this number 10, its delusional view that Britain, although failing totally in its responses to the pandemic, will somehow flourish as this isolated entity, free from the shackles of the European Union, given that that is their kind of broad view of Brexit that kind of expedient but messy end this autumn, or perhaps what Johnson hopes before, but I think you know they've got so much to go through still. That is the best we can hope for for the time being. It does mean everybody will be on edge forever, 
but better being on edge forever than being over the cliff at the end of December. Who knows? But they, certainly Johnson, would be crazy to contemplate something riskier than that, given all the uncertainties around the virus, the general fragility of the British economy, those northern seats that he wants to keep that will be particularly badly hit by a hard Brexit that some of his evangelical colleagues still ache for, and given the fact that Trump might be gone in November, or he might lose the election in November and be gone by the beginning of next year. You know, they got a lot of eggs in a Trump basket if they are dependent on a big US trade deal. Absolutely no sign that could be negotiated by November. And so they could be in with Biden, who was Obama's vice president when Obama said the UK would be at the back of a queue for a trade deal if it left the European Union. So there are a lot of factors propelling Johnson towards an expedient end to this particular phase of Brexit. There'll be many other phases to come. Nothing was oven ready last December beyond a huge election victory for him on the basis of oven ready pledges. So that's going to be important to watch as well. There are so many currents and the currents could propel the British economy over the cliff or they could actually end up being steadied by intelligent policy making. The phrase intelligent policy making has not been regularly applied to this number 10 operation. But perhaps the prospect of the leap over the cliff will propel them towards it in the near future. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to this uh, podcast. The next live virtual show is on July the 6th, and you can get tickets for that on the King's Place website now. And it's it's great. Everyone can join in, even though we're not in a theatre together at the moment for a bit longer. There are all kinds of ways. We even, by the way, oh yeah, for those of you who didn't make it last time, can't believe there was any legitimate reason why not to. We did one of our famous predictions. Normally, I'm dependent on seeing an audience putting their hands up live at a theatre. But um, we did our famous predictions. We had the technology in place that people could make predictions and we counted up the votes, uh, many, many, many votes at half time. Half time. Well, it wasn't a football match. At the interval where we all went off to get a glass of wine. And the prediction was this from the audience who tuned into the virtual show. Would, this was the question, would Boris Johnson lead the Conservatives into the next general election? That was the question I explained, that that election, we're talking 2024-2025. And the vast majority, it was over 70%, I think, maybe kind of 68, I don't know, something around there, predicted that he would not do so. So there we are. That implies that the level of chaos that has manifested itself in recent months will, if anything, intensify. Because to remove a prime minister is an act of Shakespearean intensity that needs big, big reasons for an act of regicide. Mind you, as I always say, the predictions of my audiences are always wrong in line with my predictions. We dance as one. 
Thank you so much for listening. I'll be on the podcast next week and live at the virtual show on July the 6th.